0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host from Stellenbosch University's Center for Chinese Studies, Kobus van Staden in Cape Town. How are you today, Kobus? Very well, thank you. I'm in, sitting in the middle of a, of a thunderstorm. In a thunderstorm, because uh, w- winter is coming. If if I'm if I'm correct, right? Yes. Okay, which is still, I haven't been able to get my head around that. But uh, <laughs> uh, these two hemisphere things really throw me for a curve. Uh, we're we're going to have three topics today. As, uh, as Actually, we're going to do four topics today, a little bonus one. Um, and the, the last one is kind of a fun one, actually. So we're going to talk about uh, what uh, clothing uh, the South African Olympic team is going to be wearing, and specifically where their kit is made. That's something of a controversy that is now brewing down in uh, kobus 's neighborhood. Then we're going to head over to Malawi, and a lot of coverage this past week uh, out of little tiny landlocked Malawi. Malawi oftentimes doesn't capture the headlines of the likes of The Guardian and other newspapers, so they got... Uh, they're, they're in the headlines this week. And then uh, then we're going to end the main part part of the podcast uh, with a little bit of self-promotion from me where I was interviewed uh, by a journalist uh, who wrote a piece for e-learning Africa on the growing uh, links between the Chinese and Africa and the education front. And finally, a little bonus is that uh, the Chinese are now at a level of their engagement and development in Africa that they're actually being included in what I consider to be um, conspiracy theories. So we'll uh, we'll touch on that. So let's get down to start in South Africa, Cobus, where uh, the Olympic Committee, which is the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, known as, correct me if I'm wrong, is it Sasco? Saskok? SASCOC I think. SASCOC. There we go. Came under a lot of fire this past week by virtue of the fact that they have contracted out the uniforms. And the, all of the equipment, the, the clothing apparel that the Olympic team, the South Africa Olympic team, will be wearing this summer in London to a Chinese firm known as Arke, if I think I'm saying that one right as well. And uh, not everybody's happy there because it's violating the kind of ethic of the buy local Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well, this comes against the background of of a long campaign um, by South African um, textile workers' union against against China generally, against both imports cheap imports from China, and also um, against certain kind of labor practices in Chinese and Taiwanese-run clothing companies in South Africa. So there's been skirmishes between the between this union and you know kind of and, and Chinese interests for a while, and now this is seen as this kind of massive massive kind of snub um, for South African garment workers, um, because it's not only for 2012, it's also actually for 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 the 2016 as well. As well,
0: yes. That's right. But I guess the key question is, and this is a broader question about uh, Chinese apparel and Chinese textile manufacturing, not just in Africa, but this is a global challenge, actually, is, you know, that China price is so compelling and so competitive that even low-cost South African labor, which is higher than most African labor... Um, is still much more expensive than importing textiles from China. So how what is what is Sasko to do if at the end of the day their budget's limited?
1: Exactly, exactly. There's two points here. The first is that Sascock was saying that, well, sorry, you know, kind of during the – in 2008 when we were looking for sponsors, um, none none of the South African companies wanted to sponsor us because all of the South African sponsor money was then going into the World Cup, which was in 2008. And, um, so you know, kind of, um, so that was the one problem they couldn't get money out of out of the South African industry, and you know, athletics is not very well funded in South Africa. You know, kind of South African funding tends to go tends to go for rugby and cricket; um, those are the two best funded sports in South Africa, um, you know, so they couldn't get money. And then the Chinese actually, you know, they 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 got a sponsorship deal from China. That's the one thing. Um, the other thing is that South African garment workers, their salaries are not actually that low. I mean, they have very, very powerful competitive unions, you know, kind of so there's been worries in the South African, expressed in the South African press that, you know, kind of the workers are kind of... A bit too well paid to, comp- to compete with China, you know, so that's, that's the other side.
0: Well, it was a $4 million deal for both the 2012 and the 2016 Olympics. And I think the the most salient point is one that you brought up which is the fact that nobody else offered to step up. So in some ways, I don't necessarily blame Sascock for going to the Chinese. Where does the burden stand for the rest of South African industry to pick up the deal and the sponsorship? So if there is any type of patriotism that's going on or any nationalism, why, are, why would it be directed against the Chinese and not against South African businesses who failed to pick up the sponsorship in the first
1: place? exactly and i mean what you know what better kind of um you know buy local kind of sponsorship is there than the local olympic team i mean i can't i can't imagine why anyone didn't jump on that
0: yeah i mean but now Separate from the sponsorship deal, there's also the, the secondary issue, and this is a much larger issue, uh, and this is one that people have to be very, very aware of, is the competitive threat coming from the Chinese and the displacement and the dislocation that they're causing in industries like textiles. Uh, and this is happening across Africa, and again, beyond Africa's borders as well, to, you know, in, in South America as well. But one key point, though, and this is something we brought up on the podcast a couple weeks ago, talking about the Huanjian, uh shoe investment deal in Ethiopia, is that as China seeks to move itself up the value chain and getting actually out of the textile and that low-end manufacturing, and they're expecting to export some of that or outsource some of that to Africa, you might start to see in the next couple of years um, some, you know, some outsourcing from China and Chinese manufacturers to do more textile production in Africa itself. So, you know,
1: it's, this is a very complicated space to be in. Yes, yes. And I mean, at the same time, you know, South Africa, at the moment, South African clothing manufacturers are finding themselves in a situation where their clothes aren't particularly cheap. Um, they're certainly not cheaper than Chinese clothes, and they're also not particularly good, you know, kind of they're not they're not really beautiful or particularly well designed or particularly well made, uh, you know, so South African in order to to compete with the Chinese South African designers um, are going to have to do something, you know, kind of Africa probably going to have to follow a similar model that the Ethiopians followed with shoes, you know, and rebrand themselves and do something that, sh- that the Chinese aren't doing.
0: But the one key difference between Ethiopia and South Africa is that South Africa has much more established unique- uh, where it doesn't seem like anywhere else on the continent you have that type of union presence.
1: Yes, and to a certain extent, you know that's that's in a in a way in South Africa that I mean, it for for South African workers that's a good thing, but for South African industry that can sometimes it can kind of hamstring the industry a little bit because it does make it, uh, you know, it, it does. Uh, Exposed the South, South African garment industry to strikes. Um, you know, kind of, it does make it kind of less less easy for for kind of small designers to get in, and so on. So it it, it complicates the situation.
0: Now, while this just wrapping this this subject up, while this seems to have pissed off the unions uh, and rankled the feathers of South African textile workers, is this resonating beyond? uh you know to the general public is this could this potentially turn on the olympic team or on sasquatch or rally be a rallying point an anti chinese rallying point in south africa
1: you know, um, not that I've seen so far, I think particularly because South Africans aren't that interested in athletics, you know, it, it might kind of get blown up in the future depending on who decides, who in the party decides to jump uh, on that bandwagon, you know, kind of so it might get manipulated. At the moment, it's, it's still at the level of, oh, you know, kind of someone should have done something, you know, kind of what we'll see how it develops in the next few weeks.
0: Okay, well, uh, we will watch that one and keep our eyes on it leading up into the 2012 games in London. Let's move on now to Malawi. Malawi is, uh, you know, I actually had to look this one up. There's very few African countries that I'm not actually immediately uh, aware of on, on, on a map. In this one, I was like, Malawi, I thought it was in West Africa. It's actually a sliver of a country in landlocked in East Africa. And it's gotten uh, quite a bit of attention because anytime you get a prominent coverage in the Guardian newspaper, uh, that does, that's a nice thing. Uh, um, and uh, David Smith uh, uh, penned an article called China's Booming Trade with Africa Helped Tone Its Diplomatic uh, Muscle. And this, of course, prompted you and I to look further in terms of Sino-Malawian ties. And some interesting things are starting to happen there, in part that Malawi was one of the later uh, diplomatic switches that occurred between from Taiwan to China. and uh, And at the same time, it seems like this is a case where Malawi is different than, say, South Africa or what we've seen in Sudan or Angola, where there are clear natural resources and there are clear strategic interests for the Chinese. Malawi is more of a diplomatic play for the Chinese. What do you think, Kobas?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, Malawi was another of these countries that used to have uh, ties with Taiwan. Um, And then, you know, in 2007, Malawi dumped Taiwan. um, And since then, the Chinese have been very, very active there. And um, I, you know, kind of, um, The Guardian quoted this interesting um, and rare, um, you know, interview with, with the Chinese ambassador in Malawi, where he was saying that, you know, what we, you know, we're not, we're not interested in, we're not getting oil or minerals or anything from Malawi. What we're interested in is diplomatic relations and mm-hmm. international support. Um, so, you know, that was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, kind of how much diplomatic support Malawi can actually give China. I mean, that's a question.
0: And that's really the other key point here is the diplomatic play, that we focus so much attention in the media on China's natural resource play in Africa, but at the end of the day, um, it's a, they have a multi-pronged interest there, and part of it, of course, is diplomatic. So take, for example, that the Malawians have a vote in the UN General Assembly, just like every other African state. Also, the Malawians most, you know, are part of various multinational institutions in Africa. And at the same time, this allows China to build a coalition. So even though they may not have the strategic resources that Angola has, that Sudan, uh, that, in, you know, we talked about, you know, Ethiopia and Tanzania and whatnot, this small country has votes. And I think that's very, very important. The other thing which I think is interesting to bring up here, Cobus, is the fact that uh, as, and, you know, I just finished reading uh, When China Rules the World by Martin Jack, which has gotten a lot of really good press uh, for its assessments of China in the 21st century, and one of the key themes of his book is that, the, you know, Beijing is setting up tributary relationships with not only Africa, but also South Asia in so many ways, kind of building on its legacy over thousands of years of Chinese history and its interactions with other states. And in many ways, the dependence that small little countries like, like Malawi are going to have building trade ties with China allows them, the Chinese, to be able to exert tremendous influence over them. So it's, uh, you know, those those ideas, I think, are some of the other kind of areas to watch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in Malawi specifically... You know, you we saw um, a, a very kind of familiar kind of pattern. I think you know, kind of, of how uh, of a, a, a president uh, who slowly and slowly but surely became very uh, unpopular in the West after, particularly after he kind of he deported the the kind of a British high la- high ranking British diplomat, and he also told uh, you know kind of Malawi's uh, IMF donors that they can go to hell if they want to, um, and uh, you know and you know being kind of propped up by a lot of chinese money and you know you there was the, all of these very classic kind of chinese investments you know a, a large amount of you know a, a certain amount of road be, roads being built a university uh the parliament building and so well, on there's got to be a stadium in there somewhere yeah, there's a stadium. <laughs> and, um, and now, of course, he died. You know, he, he had, a, he had a, um, you know, a, a heart attack and he died. And, and his successor has now been, as today, has been, you know, kind of sworn in. So what do you think is going to happen with all of these Chinese deals and these Chinese investments now that the government might be going a different direction?
0: I think at the end of the day, uh, and this is a very key trend to watch. Is that I don't see a, a significant change, you know, happening. In part because the Chinese, and this is something that has gone largely unnoticed in the West, have reduced the tariffs on 95% of Malawian products. Uh, now think about what the what African states have been begging the Europeans and the Americans, and this has really been the the thing that's unravelled the Doha round of the World Trade Organization talks. Which was agricultural tariffs, and so considering Malawi's major exports of tobacco, cotton, tea, wood, and other kind of you know commodity products, the fact that the Chinese have zeroed out these tariffs uh, really gives preferential access to the Chinese market, and again creates this dependency. I can't imagine that the Malawians would on a on a, turn, on a dime turn so quickly to, to avoid that, particularly when the walls. On commodity products are so high into the European Union and into the United States. So it would be surprising to me to see a dramatic change in policy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think, I think the other thing is obviously is that um, you know the the new president is this only the second female president on in, in you know in Africa. So and and she she's not as kind of embedded in the party. She actually started a new party. You know, kind of. Um, and, uh, you know, which means that, it, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if Malawi manages to kind of to get the holy grail of, of balancing good relationships with China and good relationships with the West, you know, kind of if, if it's possible for them to actually walk that tightrope.
0: It might be easier for Malawi to do that than to other countries with strategic natural resources. Uh, where it becomes far more contentious and where there's a lot more skin in the game. I would imagine that for the Malawians, um, the Americans and and the Europeans may not pay as much attention uh, just because, again, there isn't oil there. So that's a blessing and a curse in some respects. But this idea of the low tariffs, low trade, uh, higher trade, you know, duty-free trade is something that's, again, something very interesting to watch. I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, At One of my former employers, who I I don't want to name quite yet, I'll name it soon enough, uh, At one of my former employers, I brought up this story that China had reduced uh, tariffs to zero on 4,000 African products. And the reaction in the newsroom was, oh, well, that's just China trying to be colonial and taking over Africa. And I thought that was such an interesting reaction here in Paris to, to to that move. When in fact, that's what promotes trade. That's what promotes commerce. That's what promotes an agrarian economy is being able to sell your products. And to hear that in Europe, that defensiveness come up so quickly, uh, it, it reflects a little bit of the of the Anglo American European mindset on on these things. And where the Chinese, I think, are absolutely getting it right. You want to to win over hearts and minds. Open your markets, and it's something, exactly. and it's something that I don't think the Americans and the Europeans really understand.
1: Exactly, and I mean one of the fundamental, you know, kind of aspects of European colonialism was exactly the thing of like they they refused to to kind of to allow African industry to grow. I mean that was the basis of you know of European colonialism. So you know how how can <laughs> how could the kind of you know scrapping of tariffs be seen as colonialist? I mean it's the opposite of colonialism.
0: But again I come back to this concept of the tributary state. We've we've talked about in past podcasts that um you know colonialism and mercantilism and these these 20th century kind of paradigm simply don't work when trying to define what the Chinese are doing in Africa and when Martin Jack came up with what he said was you know it's more like a tributary system where you have a real dis- imbalance in in wealth and that forces the Chinese you know hierarchical superiority over these smaller trading states Malawi seems to fit that model very very well so just food for thought let's move on now to our last topic and again there's a little bit of self-promotion in this one because yours truly, me, uh, is actually featured in the article, but that is not why we are talking about it today. Uh, This is from eLearning Africa. That's eLearning-Africa.com. They're doing a story on the uh, China-Africa partnership effective for education question. Um, And we've talked a little bit about education, but education has never been one of the overarching priorities of uh, Chinese aid, investment, development in africa what are your thoughts when it comes to the education sector covers
1: well you know i think you know as the 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 base the the first basic thing that I, that I have to say is that you know kind of any help education-wise in africa is probably welcome you know um, the Chinese have have used a certain amount of education help as part of their their soft power expansion in Africa. There's always a certain amount, a hundred or two hundred or so of, of bursaries involved of you know afford kind of for promising African students to study in China. So obviously, I mean that is not I mean you know it, it has its own its directed. You but know? that's a
0: tactic that's gone back to the days of Mao, where they used to bring over promising young Africans to kind of train in the Communist Party training schools in Beijing and Shanghai and whatnot. I mean, I mean, that's nothing new per se right yeah yeah you know, yeah. yeah well you know yeah. i guess you know there's 18 confucius institutes those are of course the chinese language training centers that are spread all around africa they've got them what i think it's stellenbosch there's one right yes they're, it's the first one in africa is it's stellenbosch, at stellenbosch university. they're <laughs> at Kenyatta university in nairobi uh yes. you know so there's 18 of those but again that to me is very localized impact uh, when when I think of e-learning and education, one of the key parts of that is actually connectivity, network connectivity. So when we talk about uh, with the Chinese contribution, it may not be in the actual educational forum, but it might just be in Huawei and ZTE and the networking of Africa, the wiring up. I mean, all across the continent, it is Chinese engineers putting in mobile networks to connect people, allow them to talk and do business and trade and whatnot. And that's now can be used for educational purposes. Yeah. I
1: mean, you know, one cool. of the one of the for me, one of the most interesting points made in this article was this, this idea that African literacy might be that we might be seeing a, 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 a new um, a new kind of literacy kind of you know in in uh, emerging in Africa which which is you know unprecedented in the world, which is a kind of a um, a techno literacy that that surpasses or, or precedes actual you know kind of you know reading text um you know kind of where where people uh who might not have had the chance uh, chance to become literate in the in the conventional kind of uh you know kind of school schoolhouse kind of sense still, um, you know, are able to, to live their lives and enhance their lives through, for example, their mobile phones. And in this case, you know, kind of the Chinese are, are really breaking new ground. I mean, these, these uh, you know, kind of networks like Huawei and so on are, are enabling kind of new kinds of African lives, I think, and new kinds of ways of thinking.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it was one of the ideas that I actually brought up to the Chinese embassy in Kinshasa when I was there. Uh, It it didn't really go anywhere, but it's an idea that I think that the Chinese should consider is to use television. I mean, television is one of the technologies that's already got very, very deep penetration across the continent, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, the distances sometimes that one has to travel. You know, you can go from one side of Congo to the other, and there's television where there may not be telecommunications. Um, But again, we've talked about this as well in the past that the Chinese aren't that sophisticated in using uh, compelling television content. Um, They're just starting now with, of course, CCTV Africa out of Nairobi. That might be a channel for them to use. Um, So, you know, as in in particularly, what would people want to learn from the Chinese? Well, Mandarin. I mean, you're seeing more interest in in places like the Republic of Congo, where there's a growing demand for Mandarin language education. Um, People are looking to kind of do business with the Chinese and interact with the Chinese. So that might be an area uh, that we might see some growth as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, kind of the development of Mandarin skills, not only in, in a f- kind of formal educational institutions like the one I'm in, you know, kind of where, for example I'm learning Mandarin at Sunawash University thanks to uh, Confucius Institute teachers who you know, kind of who, who are here thanks to the Chinese government, so I mean, I'm kind of actually personally involved in that, but not only that, but also th- kind of informally just through the, the presence of Chinese immigrants, the up to a million Chinese immigrants who are living in Africa, you know, kind of, there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of kind of like interlanguages and kind of creoles developing in Africa, um, where people, you know, kind of the Chinese learn a little bit of local languages and the locals learn a little bit of Chinese and they kind of mix the two together to be able to, to do business. Um, you know, kind of, so I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's in a way you see the, the development of new forms, new forms of communication through technology and through the actual presence of, of just the presence of Chinese
0: here. Yeah, I mean, I come back to what I said in the beginning of this segment, which was I don't have tremendous asp- you know expectations of the Chinese are going to make big strides in the space, you know, in the formal educational development space. As you said, it might happen informally, either through the creation of various digital networks, the presence of a million Chinese immigrants who are there, you know, but for the most part, I can't imagine uh, a, chi- a massive Chinese aid, or educational aid program, just because that hasn't been part of the Chinese strategy, uh, which is an aid-driven strategy, it, that just isn't there. They're far more pragmatic, far more oriented towards commerce, and and, and they've recognized that there's been massive failures in the West. And the traditional donors in their ability to actually pull off widespread educational initiatives that are actually effective. And that's the key kind of right there. But uh, a guy by the name of Stephen Haggard wrote the article. Again, that's in elearning-africa.com. It's an interesting concept, interesting article, uh, and one that would be, you know, interesting to come back to uh, if we see some some movement in that space. So let's round out the podcast with uh, normally we don't kind of traffic in rumors that much. But uh, what I considered a rather entertaining article uh, you sent up uh, just today, in fact, uh, that uh, kind of puts the Chinese in a, in in a conspiracy uh, in the middle of a conspiracy in the uh, in Zimbabwe's ZANU PF. Cobus, tell us a little bit about what this. Uh, let's see, the newspapers, the Zimbabwe Mail, is alleging has happened in uh, in ZANU in with the
1: ZANU PF. Yeah, well, this newspaper is alleging that. Um that Robert Mugabe, um, you know, kind of uh, chose a successor. And the successor is um, is Emerson Nangagwa. Um, I'm probably massacring his name a little bit, but... Um, and um, that that he was chosen through you know kind of he was basically chosen by the Chinese and then rubber stamped by Mugabe's government. Um, so this is one of the kind of many many rumors you know kind of that that tend to circulate through the Zimbabwean press. And a surprising amount of them um, relate to China. You see a lot of lot of China related kind of conspiracy theories in the Zimbabwean press.
0: Well, I suspect that again, as we mentioned, that the the the, the Chinese now have replaced whites. And, and there's this idea that, you know, there is somebody pulling the strings and there is somebody controlling the chaos. And, uh, you know, so this is, a, this is an article that is terribly sourced. It's an article that feels much more like a piece of narrative fiction. Uh, you can find it in the ZimbabweMail.com. Uh, but I think it's a reflection in some ways of really the arrival of the Chinese as, as, as a true presence and as a true power now. Uh, that people are actually kind of concocting fantastical fictions like this that actually think that the Chinese actually care enough to get involved in the internal dynamics of Zimbabwean domestic politics. I suspect that the Chinese would allow, you know, this is a violation of everything that Chinese stand for when it comes for the non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. I believe that the Chinese actually like as much as possible to adhere to that kind of policy, they only violate that policy when there's an overriding strategic imperative to do so as we saw in Libya and as we've seen in some other like the Sudans as well so this just to me seems again you know a, a wonderful piece of, of of creative writing
1: yeah i mean what you see here is also i mean what you what you have in in zimbabwe is this kind of classic combination of you know kind of uh, that you see in authoritarian government of of a complete um, lack of information, com- you know, kind of combined with the, the reality that the government can do any kind of crazy thing that it wants to, you know. So it's it, it creates a situation where people can imagine any kind of crazy thing. You know, because, you know, kind of they're, they're not getting any real information out of the government anyway, and the government might do any terrible thing that they, that they put their minds to. You know, so and then in that in that context, you find this China taking on this kind of weird imagine imagination empire kind of weird role, you know, kind of where, for example. So Mugabe was was you know has been going to Singapore um, you know for, uh, re- relatively regularly to uh, to get um, cataracts removed um, and now there's a whole rumor mill going on about you know what what kind of you know kind of crazy treatments is he getting in Singapore what is the Singapore government's involve- involvement with this you know does he have cancer da, you know and so on. so it's it's just so interesting to see how China has just been incorporated into this you know into these this kind of desperate kind of wanderings, you know, kind of that that the Zimbabweans are trying to to make sense of of their horrible government.
0: Well, it's one of the consequences that occurs when you have a society that does not have a free press, that does not have a vehicle to challenge any of these conspiracies uh, and to kind of shake them loose, uh, you know, and and to confront them. So these conspiracies just kind of, you know, fester on on, on websites like this. But again, I think it's just like we've talked about how the West has misread, misread China in in so many different ways this is a wonderful example of how uh... you know at least some faction of the zimbabwean media uh, is also misreading the situation um, and it's really you if you you and i both know if you understand even a little bit about how the chinese approach you know foreign policy as a whole specifically in africa um, this goes against everything so it's hard to believe um, of course, we, you and I have no information to prove otherwise. It's just more of on our suspicions um, and a very poorly sourced article here. So, uh, well, there you go. That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, we come here and do this every Sunday. So you can find us on iTunes uh, and also you can find it on the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. Uh, we're on a, there's a little SoundCloud file. But if they can't wait to hear from you, Kobus, in between of our podcast, where can people find you on Twitter?
1: I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I try and tweet like under the radar, you know, kind of China, Africa things people might have missed a few times a day.
0: Nice, well, and you can find me at E-Olander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, and I'm tweeting about five to six times a day now. Uh, basically everything above the radar, Um, trying to kind of give the big headlines. So if you want to kind of stay on top of, you know, what the top stories of the week are, kind of, uh, you know, how they emerged, then uh, subscribe to me on Twitter. And you can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes. So we'll talk to you again next Sunday. Thanks so much for listening.